Great. Thank you, Kate. Do keep that open, because uh, I think with Daniel, we're all in a sort of territory we don't know all that well. And uh, again, it's quite a long reading, so lots of things that we can draw out and cover tonight. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at this God's Word together. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that you speak um, across the centuries, because you are the living Word, and your Son, Jesus Christ, his voice, um, his kingship, his sovereignty are over us all today. Give us open ears to respond to your voice and to see and respond to your kingdom in the world today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was 500 years ago this month, as I said, that Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of that church and really sparked a a huge revolution, a religious revolution, that spread right across Europe, what's called the Reformation. He had a gift, Martin Luther, I don't know if you know, he's a very colourful character, um, for a very blunt application of the Bible. So his sermons are really very pithy. Um, Intellectual, he was a very bright guy too, but he, he loved to apply the text he was reading particularly to the situation of his time and to the authorities and powers of his time, which in his day, early 16th century, meant the Roman Catholic and the the Roman Empire. And the Pope was one of the people who came into his sermons, and often not in a particularly positive way. You might know, and we'll look at this in the seminar, but he was challenging the way that the medieval church had grown ideas, teachings about the sacraments, baptism and what we call communion. And he was arguing it was time that we stop letting the church tell us what to believe and actually listen to the scriptures. He said the medieval church's power over ordinary Christians was so uh, strong and influential and, and bad, it was like a slavery imposed upon church members from above by ultimately the Pope. And he compared the slavery of the church over Christians to the way that Babylon was enslaving the Jewish exiles from Jerusalem 2,000 years earlier, which, of course, is the setting of the book of Daniel. Here we are in Babylon, and he is an exile away from his homeland, and he's effectively a slave. So Luther entitled his book about this subject of of the way the church was controlling people, somewhat provocatively, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. It was all about the Pope. So the Pope for Luther was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. As I say, he's quite provocative. You'd have to come to the seminar to hear more of him. But last time we saw how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was unable, despite his power, to burn Daniel's friends, his three friends that were thrown into the fiery furnace, when they refused to worship his gods. So in chapter 3 of Daniel, the issue really is, whose is the true religion? Is it Nebuchadnezzar's God, or is it Daniel's God? In chapter 4, tonight, the issue is really, who is the true king? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? the most powerful man on the planet, or is it not? Is it someone else, God? Who is the true king? Who's really in charge? Um, Does Nebuchadnezzar rule, or does heaven rule? That's the lesson. Nebuchadnezzar's got to learn that lesson tonight, and next week we'll see his son Belshazzar has to learn it too. 
So here is Daniel's perspective on who the true king is. Who's the real king? Who rules from Babylonian captivity? And again, I've got three um, headings tonight to help us walk through this chapter. The first one is this. They're all about human kingdoms. Human kingdoms, firstly, are glorious. They are glorious things. Um, Empires, uh, often rulers, are very impressive things and people. They are splendid. They have what he calls splendor and honor in our reading. Nebuchadnezzar is is the Putin or the Trump of his day. He's a very powerful man. He is presiding over an enormous empire, the Babylonian Empire. So in verse 4 of our reading, Daniel 4 verse 4, here he is looking back to his situation before the events of our chapter when God intervened. And he says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace. That's a clue, he's quite rich, isn't it? At home in my palace, would you say that normally? To your friends over, over a beer, I was at home in my palace. And he says, I was contented and prosperous. It's it's a real picture of particularly material comfort. He has everything he could wish for. He wants a choice wine. He calls for it and a servant runs with it for him. He wants a change of clothing. A servant runs and brings it for him. He's made it big. His armies control the known world. His building projects are in every known city that he now has captured and controls. He is so wealthy, all the world as the picture of the tree, the dream of the tree implies, all the world depends upon him. And the birds are nesting in his branches. He's providing food for the nations. And he is particularly, in history, an engineer, an architect, even more than a soldier. He loves building stuff. His designs um, are even more glorious than the Shard in London or the Forum in Norwich. They are that spectacular. And Babylon had palaces and statued streets and the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Who were they made by? You guessed it, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's not suggesting and challenging him that there's anything wrong with building wonderful, beautiful buildings and cities. Or even ruling over an empire if God's given it to you. But in verse 27, that last verse of our reading, we see that Nebuchadnezzar's empire building has been at the expense of the poor. Here's the problem. Instead of doing what's right, as Daniel puts it, he's presumably been doing what's wrong. He's been oppressing the poor. He's been building stuff, probably at the expense of the slaves carrying the stone slabs for him. He's not been paying them wages. They've been suffering and probably dying. And he needs, as Daniel's saying in verse 27, to be ready to renounce his sins, to start governing for the people, not for himself. So in verse 29, we didn't have the whole of this chapter read, but we'll look at it. In verse 29, if you just look there, we see him gloating over his wonderful building project, his success. Even after the warning dream of this very sinister tree that we'll come back to, Twelve months later, he says, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I've built as my, the royal residence, by mighty power and for the glory of whose? My majesty. It's all me, 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 isn't it? 
He's not learned the lesson yet, has he? So here is within this glorious kingdom, and you know, human empires can be glorious things and can be very beneficial to the subjects when they provide you know, an economy and employment and water and health care. But here is this wonderful kingdom that could have been so great, but like often then and now, he's built it upon the twin evils of oppression of the poor and pride in his achievement. And that is all wrong. Of course, those stem, both of those things, from the even deeper sin of dethroning God. He's playing God himself. So, human kingdoms are glorious, but of course flawed. So here's our second point. This is the real heart of this passage. Human kingdoms are fragile. One night, this successful king has a very disturbing dream. He knows it's a, it's a bad omen, this dream. Um, in those days, it was quite common to think that dreams were messages from the gods to you. So he calls his wise men to try and explain the dream to him. Um, they seem to be baffled, or perhaps just nervous, of what the dream clearly means. So he calls Daniel. And Daniel, remember, is this Jewish exile that already, if you've been reading Daniel these last weeks, Nebuchadnezzar knows is a very wise man. He's got a kind of hotline to God. He's interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar earlier in Daniel. So he's pretty confident that Daniel will have the right answer of what the dream means. So he is so desperate, so in fear of what this dream could mean, that he, if I can put it this way, he even turns to God for the answer. This proud emperor is so desperate, and is the last resort, actually, he finally goes to God's man, Daniel. And one writer says he would never have given glory to God unless compelled by necessity. So godless he was, it took desperation. And it does with most of us, doesn't it? It takes something desperate to make us turn to God. He describes his vision. I saw a superb tree, he says, I'm kind of summarizing it, as tall as it's broad, so fruitful. It's, it's beneficial to all the animals and birds that dwell under it. And it's, at the first, it's a wonderful picture. It's this tree, and trees in the Bible are often a picture of strength for a kingdom or a king. Um, the Bible books of Ezekiel and Isaiah feature trees as pictures of the strength of other kingdoms around. Um, and back in the Garden of Eden, you might remember, there's a tree of life at the center of the Garden of Eden, too, from which all life flourishes. And Nebuchadnezzar hears this, this first bit of the dream. It's quite pleasant. He's probably, oh, what a wonderful picture of me. That's me. I'm glorious. I'm splendid. I'm fruitful. Then, of course, he goes on and says, an angel came from God and rather spoilt my dream. The angel said in as many words, cut the tree down. Strip the leaves from it. Drive all the animals away. And he knows, doesn't he, without Daniel even telling him, this has got to be bad news. This has got to be for him. The bad news is that your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, is about to be stripped down and cut away. And uh, there's a a bit of good news, isn't there? Um, You're not going to die. There'll be a stump of your kingdom left. But the bad news is, it's going to finish. 
So verse 12 rather gives the game away that the tree, if we hadn't guessed this, is a picture of him. Uh, It switches to that third person. He, him, Nebuchadnezzar, let him, sorry, verse 15, isn't it? Verse 15, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals among the plants. It's a pretty grim image of what's going to happen, isn't it? Let his mind be changed from that of a man. He's going to basically go mad. Let him be given the mind of an animal. He's going to lose his rational powers. It's a vision of madness sent, in his case, by God as a judgment, as a discipline, as a a teaching lesson for him, for his oppression and pride and godlessness. He's told it won't be just for a few days off work, as it were. It's seven times, um, it says, which is probably, people aren't sure, but it's a long time. It could be seven months. It could be seven seasons. It's a long time that he's going to be sick. So he turns to Daniel after saying, well, well, there's my dream. Um, What do you think? And poor Daniel doesn't quite know what to say, does he? It says he's disturbed for a time. And suspect it's because out of compassion for the sovereign, he's concerned at what's going to happen. It's rather wonderful that, that Daniel is concerned for this really rather oppressive king that's made his people slaves. It's a great reminder. Jesus says, doesn't he, pray for those that persecute you. So when Daniel's asked to interpret the dream, um, he says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies... Only this wasn't about you, but it is. Daniel can't change the message. He knows that it's come from God. He's clear about that. So he delivers pretty straight what it means. Um, Verse 22, your majesty, you are that tree. You are that tree. There's no sliding out from that. No point in the finger somewhere else. You are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion to the ends of the earth. But, verse 22, this is the decree. The Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. The dream will come to pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And it comes true. Twelve months later, as we've seen, Nebuchadnezzar is there on his rooftop, gloating over his building projects, and the voice of God immediately speaks to him. Your royal authority has been taken from you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And that moment, that day, it seems, um, he loses his mental capacities, he goes mad, and there's good historical evidence from other writings that whilst king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar did indeed get taken ill mentally and was forced to leave his position and leave the city for a while. So in the months of madness that followed, Uh, as the diagram, the picture up there shows, he cannot have been a pretty sight, can he? You know, hair like feathers on an eagle and um, fingernails like talons. Um, Out in the wild, drenched with the dew. 
how the mighty have fallen. And that's because, as Daniel says, heaven rules. Men don't. Heaven rules. Daniel's effectively saying, you'll be asking yourself, won't you, who now is the true king? Who really rules? Me or God? That judgment that God inflicts upon him, the transformation of his fortunes, is a warning to him, but also to us that, you could put it this way, the real insanity in human life is thinking you're God. That's actually the real insanity. And he's having to go through this period of madness to humble him and make him realize that, that heaven rules, that he isn't God, that the Most High is sovereign and he is not. He only holds power because God's given it to him for a time. And it's a good reminder today, isn't it, that flourishing kingdoms and flourishing careers and flourishing churches may look glorious for a time, but really they are very fragile especially when they forget the God who's appointed them. During the American Civil War, um, back in the 19th century, that was tearing the, the United States apart, Abraham Lincoln called a day of national prayer. He said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have grown in numbers and wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. We've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It's a prayer that Nebuchadnezzar could have done with praying rather earlier in his career than he did. The kingdom that forgets that heaven rules is fragile. So faith says, remember, that God is king and you are not. That God is great and we are small. That heaven rules and we're simply appointed for a time by him. You've noticed how many times in this chapter God is named Most High. It's the distinctive name of this chapter for God. And it makes sense in the context, doesn't it? He is most high. And what's that say to us? Well, it just reminds us that we're really very low. He's in heaven. We're on earth. We may exult in our success in business or academic studies. But the moment pride begins to say, look at all this stuff I've built. Look what I've done. We're forgetting God is king. And we're not. Heaven rules. The French mathematician Pascal once said, only a madman thinks he is a king or an emperor. That's right, isn't it? God is king. Only God is truly king. We're fragile if we forget that. That's our second point. The last one, briefly to finish with, is this. Human kingdoms glorify God. This is, I think, the most surprising thing in this chapter. Because madness and misery are not the end of the story, mercifully, for Nebuchadnezzar. It's a happy ending. God's humbling of him is not just to destroy him, it's to teach him. 
And he learns the lesson about who is really king. Um, so for the end of the chapter, again, it wasn't read for us, so turn over to, um, turn across to verse 34 of Daniel 4. The remedy from God has worked. It says he raises his eyes to God and he's sane again. It says his court advisors ask him to come back from out there in the wilderness and take up the throne again. And he says the splendor of his kingdom outshines anything it was glorious with before. It's a tremendous restoration for him. But here's the point, that even proud kings will one day end up praising God. I guess we'd also say in the New Testament, either in this life or in the next, when every knee will bow before Jesus. But the second half of verse 34, Daniel here is, um, through the words of Nebuchadnezzar, he's really preaching the good news of this passage through the mouth of a pagan king. Here is Nebuchadnezzar saying, once restored by God, then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. I realized who the true king is, and I praised him. A pagan king praising the God of heaven. True human kingdoms glorify him. So Nebuchadnezzar here is ending his national proclamation in this chapter because that's what this whole chapter is, a statement from him as he began it, with public praise, not for his pagan gods or for him, but for Daniel's God. Isn't that extraordinary? The God that has shown himself truly king. So verse 35. These are, again, phrases that are repeated in this chapter. They're important. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's just a posh word for his kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. Who is king? God is king, says Nebuchadnezzar. Who rules? Heaven rules. So you might remember back in verse 2 of our reading, the king announced to the world back then, it is my pleasure, as we started the service by hearing, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Here is a pagan king preaching the gospel to us, praising God. It's amazing, isn't it, for him to do that? Just privately it would be amazing, but he's doing it in a public proclamation to all of his subjects. It's not clear, I don't think, if he's fully converted, Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel. Some think he is. Personally, I think he's not quite. He's amazed by God. He's humbled by God's greatness. I'm not sure he's quite converted, sadly. But that actually isn't the point of this chapter. It's not really a testament of Nebuchadnezzar at all, this chapter. This is a chapter not about a pagan conversion. It's about the true king. It's about the Most High, who is sovereign over the nations of the earth. That phrase keeps being repeated. The angel announces in verse 17 that all of this happens to Nebuchadnezzar, not simply to humble him, not simply that he should be converted or learn a lesson, though he does, It's so that the living, verse 17, may know, that means us, that we may know today in Norwich in 2017 that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone that he wishes. God is king. Whatever, whoever rules over us, 
whatever hard times or hard regimes we have to experience, heaven rules. So today, brothers and sisters of ours may suffer under persecution in other parts of the world, and we need to pray for them. We need to pray that they will remember the Most High is sovereign and not the regime over them. They will fall one day. They're fragile, but heaven rules. We may live in the world of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, but the Most High is sovereign. They are not. They are fragile if they forget from whose hand their power comes. We may labor ourselves this week under unsympathetic bosses or exam stress or the school bully, but they're not king. The Most High is sovereign over all the powers of the earth. So Daniel's saying, isn't he, in chapter 4, look, God is sovereign. Have faith in him, whatever you are living through. Heaven rules. Things will be right one day. And in the New Testament, Jesus says that a new kingdom is coming. It's his language for Daniel's message. A new kingdom's coming. He says it'll be like a a mustard seed. It'll look like nothing. But nothing will delay its growth. It will be unnoticed by rulers and princes. But one day it will fill the whole earth. And this seed will become a great plant, a tree, the real tree, in which the birds, the peoples of the world, will one day nest and find life. Revelation says that a new tree has been planted among God's people. So Revelation 22, the world thinks that the cross, the tree where Jesus died, is a place of shame because Jesus died on it. But in God's purpose, we know, don't we, that place of shame is none other than the tree of life. We may live in the shadow of lesser trees, modern-day regimes and Nebuchadnezzars, but without exception, they will one day fall and decay. But Jesus' kingdom, his cross, will be everlasting and glorious. They will defeat sin and death, they'll humble the proud, and his cross will one day, his tree of life will one day tower over all creation. So can I suggest that we're still for a few moments to pray for our world and to pray for those that need to know today that heaven rules. Maybe that's you that needs to know that. It may be that someone you know is uh, feeling oppressed by whatever it might be. It may be just praying for the persecuted church around the world. In a moment, we'll join together in a prayer on the screen. Let's be still for a few moments first. So, Father, we thank you for this powerful story and this great reminder that whatever appearances may be of greatness and glory, that you reign, that heaven rules over all that looks powerful, that glitters. 
May those that you have given power to remember that they are but um, servants of yours, called to rule for the sake of others, and called to praise your glory. May we know that in this world and the next, every knee will bow and confess your name. In Jesus' name, amen.